0: independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, Shadow Citizen. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your host, Rachel L. McIntosh.
1: Another week. I'm so happy to be here with all of you, and I'm very happy that I'm going to be speaking to this woman today, Allison Weir. I ended up calling her and she called me and we talked for a while. She does a website called ifamerica.new.org, and I think the organization is called If Americans New, but the website is ifamerica.new.org. And what I was interested in talking to her about is because I saw a piece called Who wrote the Balfour Declaration and why? And it kind of blew my mind. It's very history heavy. And we'll probably talk about that in the second hour if you're able to hang on with us. But what this is all about is Israel, Israel in Palestine. And I'm going to read a quote from If Americans Knew from their Web page. It says, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the world's major sources of instability. Americans are directly connected to this conflict and increasingly imperiled by its devastation. It is the goal of Americans New to provide full and accurate information on this critical issue and on it, and on our power, duty, and duty to bring a resolution. I wish I didn't <laughs> flub the end of that, but it's a very powerful statement at the beginning of Americans, if Americans New. And Allison, thank you for being with us and I'm so excited you're with us.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. I always love the chance to try to give people facts about such an important issue that most of us have never focused on very much, I'm afraid. And I think that's the big problem. Yeah. So um, Yeah. So,
1: well, let's start off. I'm just blowing my mind by some of the facts at your website. You've got the amount of, you've got comparisons of Israelis and Palestinians killed since 2000. And... It's, it's like nonstop. There's all these different facts there, and it's going on and on and on. Daily U.S. military aid to Israel and to the Palestinians. Um, why don't you start off about why you got the bug to study this and make this website?
0: I'd be glad to. Um, I, uh, I, I About 18 years ago, I knew very little about this issue. I don't happen to be Jewish or Muslim or Arab or Palestinian. And like most people, I had never focused on it. My background is Christian, and uh, I had never focused on Israel-Palestine. I had Jewish friends who had gone to Israel, and their kids had gone to Israel, etc. So uh, I was, of course, very sympathetic to Israel because we're very aware of the, the Nazi atrocities and what happened uh, in World War II, etc., so there's sort of an underlying sympathy for Israel because of that history. But I didn't really know much about this issue. And then in fall of 2000, it's easy to date my awakening, because yeah, it occurred right. when uh, what's called the second Palestinian uprising began, uh, which was fall of 2000. Mm-hmm. And the Arabic word for uprising is intifada. So people will often hear about something called an intifada, and because so often we use a foreign language term arabic we don't recognize that just means uprising mm-hmm. the american revolutionary war would be called the american intifada against the british okay. so it's something americans are very familiar with of rising up against oppression but so anyway in fall of 2000 that that uprising occurred and it was in the us news a bit you could see some images of children throwing go- stones against tanks, and it was in newspapers a bit. So I finally decided at that time to pay attention and just follow the news coverage on that issue and try to understand what it was all about. At that time, I was the editor of a very small weekly newspaper in Northern California, just writing about local issues. We did not cover international news, we didn't even cover national news. So it wasn't for my job. But I was a journalist. My background is journalism. I had studied journalism. I was the editor of this newspaper. So when I paid attention to the coverage of Israel-Palestine, just to follow the issue, I noticed very quickly that it was very one-sided coverage, Mm -hmm. that we were hearing from and about Israelis in great detail, as we should. But then I thought we would also hear from and about Palestinians. There are two parties in this conflict. Right. But the news coverage was very much coming from the direction of one of those parties. And I'm an American. I'm not Israeli, I'm not Palestinian. I wanted the full story, the full picture without bias or spin in any direction, and I noticed I was not getting that. I mainly uh my main sources of information were the San Francisco Chronicle, NPR, National Public Radio, the New York Times occasionally, etc. And all of them, all of them were basically giving a lot of information from and about Israelis and, and largely the Palestinians were being left out. So because I wanted the full story I, and the Internet was just starting to be available for research in, in early to, in fall of 2000. So I decided, well, i just go and use this new thing where you can search, uh, use search terms and see what you learn and i discovered that there were excellent sources of information from the region itself there were israeli news media in english palestinian news media in english there were many humanitarian agencies that are there in the in israel palestine on the ground that were sending out first hand reports about what was going on mm-hmm. so i was i was learning really almost in real time that israeli forces were shooting and often killing many unarmed demonstrators every day, including women and children, many children. Right. So I was shocked to read the level of violence that was being perpetrated by a very powerful military against a very weak adversary that mostly consisted of civilians without, you know, unarmed civilians. So when I started to learn that, and um, it was such a shock because it was you know, just extremely violent. Children were being shot in the eyes and the knees, etc. You could read the details. So after I guess it was a, a few months of that, I began to feel this was the most covered up story I had ever seen. I discovered that, w- that the U.S. was giving Israel about at that time it was about $8 million per day. Now it's $10 million per day. And you know, that was shocking to me. Nobody I talked to even knew that. It's our money. this is we were giving more money to Israel, a tiny country, than any other country, and none of us knew it. right So you know, beginning to think this was a major cover up across the political spectrum that had been going on for many years, I finally decided that I needed to quit my job. I was working in Sausalito, California, to quit my job and travel over to the region myself as a first as a freelance reporter and see firsthand what was going on just see for myself what was going on so i uh, i i did that in early 2001 february and march of 2001 i traveled around gaza and the west bank with my notebook uh my little camera and it was an incredibly n- intense experience as i'm sure you can imagine
1: yeah we uh, spoke shadow Citizen spoke with Anna Baltzer. And if anybody wants to go to YouTube or any of our channels um, and check it out, it's called Israel-Palestine conflict is not about religion. And the reason why, like I said at the intro, that I wanted to talk to you is because she was pretty intense. And I didn't know if it was just because she was Jewish or her whole stick was that it wasn't about uh, the conflict wasn't about religion, which is how I always imagined it to be. And I, now I've got to hear from you and you're going to tell us what you saw. And I want to know if it's very similar to what I'm guessing the way you're the vibe that I'm getting from you. It was pretty intense. And I'm going to guess you're going to tell us something similar. But you I tell so. me,
0: <laughs> I think <laughs> Go ahead, tell so. me. Anna, as, as you've mentioned, Anna, several years later, I think partly because if Ameri- I i i then started if Americans knew and started sending out reports all over the, the country and the world. So, fortunately, more people started going over, mm-hmm. and people had already done this before I had. But I was one of—I was fairly early to do this type of thing. Yeah. So, um, what you see when you go there, especially it, the the level of violence fluctuates somewhat. There's really much more violence against Palestinians every day than most people realize. Every few years, there's a major massacre of Gaza, for example. Mm -hmm. And usually people at least notice that. It's covered a little bit in in the U.S. media. But every day, there are invasions of Gaza every single day. There are invasions of the West Bank every single day. Our news media just don't bother reporting on them. Mm -hmm. But some periods are especially intense, and that's the kind of period I was there, where there was shelling of both the West Bank and Gaza. I remember when I first got to the West Bank and was going around some of the areas. um, At one point, I was in a vehicle, and I started to roll up the windows the way you would if if it suddenly starts to rain. And I sort of laughed at myself, because windows don't stop. It stops raindrops, but it doesn't stop. So but you
1: had to go was, for so something, something, right? You had to protect yourself. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And
0: in Gaza, it was um, it was even worse. There were, you know, entire residential neighborhoods were completely bullet riddled. Uh, large, large apartment buildings were destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was early 2001. This was before 9/11. This was before a single rocket had been fired from Gaza. Mm -hmm. The U.S. media tell Americans, well, Israel is defending itself. Israel is supposedly defending itself from rockets. Well, people can go to my website and see the pictures that I took before there was a single rocket from Gaza and see the destruction, massive destruction. When you travel around Israel, it does not look like that. When you travel around the Palestinian territories, you will see um, entire buildings and neighborhoods that have been leveled. They usually rebuild them fairly quickly, but that's what was going on. I saw many children who had been shot. I would go to a hospital, some you know, little hospital, and there'd be all these children that had been shot by Israeli soldiers. I saw so one little boy who was it.
1: Oh, my God. Can I interrupt? Do you think th- – all right, obviously, they, they're focusing on children. What In your experience, you saw lots of children. You didn't see adults being shot?
0: I did see adults, too. Yes.
1: Okay, so they just didn't care. They were just they were they just shooting care. everybody.
0: Okay, okay, that's right. They were shooting everybody. They were shelling everybody. They would. There are a number of firsthand reports, including by Israeli soldiers, describing shooting specifically shooting a child, knowing that was a child. Oh
1: my God! Now,
0: as we know, there will be in warfare is horrible. I, I grew up in a military family, so I'm, I'm very proud of my father's military service in World War II, and he was a career officer. I grew up in a military family. But warfare, anybody, I, I haven't taken part in warfare, but I sort of got a glimpse of it by being in Gaza. In wars, of course, what happens is people get killed. Right, Large, large numbers of civilians get killed in every war. It's, quote, collateral damage. But I was seeing something sometimes worse than, quote, collateral damage, where You know, a bomb is dropped and it kills everybody, including women and children and old old men and injured, et cetera. I was seeing children that had been shot. They they weren't killed by a a a bomb blast. Many were, of course, but these are children who you know a soldier had aimed a a gun and shot them. Mm -hmm. There was even a report in the um, from Israeli academic Tanya Reinhardt, and she wrote an excellent book. Uh, describing that what was going on with this particular uprising, and I think the same type of strategy is often used by Israeli military leaders and governmental leaders. They're very smart and strategic in what they do quite often. So according to this academic, this Israeli academic, they recognized that they shouldn't kill too many people during this unarmed uprising because they were worried that the world would notice and would do something about it, that it would be, you know, would would, would be stopped and Israel would be condemned for, for that action. So their thinking was, this is Israeli leaders thinking, was that they wouldn't kill too many. I mean, they had they have all the power. They could kill as many as they wanted, but they wouldn't kill too many because then the world might notice, Americans might wake up, but they could injure multitudes because injuries wouldn't be mentioned. They wouldn't tell how many people were were injured in the past week. You know, now and then they'll tell how many people were killed. Not very often for Palestinians, but now and then they will. But they almost never tell how many have been injured. So they injured, I think it was something like 6,000 Palestinians in the first month. 6,000. And according to this academic article, uh, Reinhardt said that they were specifically Israeli soldiers were specifically targeting knees and eyes. Oh, that this would yes. disable people, so they wouldn't uh-huh. be killed, but they'd be disabled. They'd be unable to take part in the uprising any further, and and would chill the whole population. You know, frighten the population into just giving in and and giving up. Right. And this wasn't a new strategy. I mean, when I saw it, I didn't know it wasn't new, but After my trip, in the last 17 years, I've read a great deal of the history of this issue and interviewed people and researched it intensively. And um, there was an earlier strategy that was implemented by uh, an Israeli leader named Itzhak Rabin, Mm -hmm. who's known as the peacemaker. He actually did try to, at one point, negotiate with Palestinians in a way that's really almost never done by Israeli leaders. So he was better than, than most Israeli leaders but he was, was a general, and he had implemented a strategy at one point that's called break the bone strategy. This was in the first uprising, called the First Intifada. It was completely unarmed. Uh, the view was, well, you would break their bones so they couldn't throw stones anymore. But that's the way to put down the uprising, breaking the bones.
1: Uh, uh, can, can I? Can we, this, uh, this, is, this is this is yeah. It's crazy. No, this is crazy. Be, it's it makes sense. I mean, if people are at a war and they need to win, they'll they'll do whatever. But back to this whole thing, what is the actual conflict? Because Anna was telling us
0: it's not about religion. What are they fighting over? That's right. It's um, it's not about religion. I agree with her. Religion periodically is brought into it, and we can discuss that later on if we want to, but. You know, for one thing, many Americans don't know that Palestinians are both Muslim and Christian. Many, many Palestinians are Christian. This is Christianity, as we know, began in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land. So the descendants of the probably the earliest apostles and the shepherds we sing about now, it's Christmas season. We sing about a little town of Bethlehem and the shepherds. Well, those descendants are Palestinians. So. There are both Muslims and Christians in the Palestinian population. Now, in terms of how it got started, I'm so glad you're bringing that up because for any any issue, you need to understand where it came from, what it's about, where the roots are. And this one is extremely misunderstood, again because of media coverage. Uh, it's you know, there's no doubt that the media are largely Israel centric and are. Um, you know, not covering this at all well, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the fact, is, you know, many people are brought up or, or have picked up this myth. Oh, they've been fighting for thousands of years. They'll, they'll always be fighting. That's not the truth at all. If you look at uh, Palestine as this region was called for, for centuries, for millennia, it was called Palestine. You can look at ancient maps, and Philistine, Pal- Palestine, the same word just in you know different um, pronunciations different languages so if you look at this this region the holy land i guess we could call it to use a more mm-hmm. neutral term maybe um, in the late 1800s early 1900s you find that it is a population at peace it consisted of about 80% muslim about 15% christian and a little under 5% jewish all living there on that land with you know, practicing their religions as they had done for many centuries. Throughout the Middle East, you, you can find those three populations, Muslims, Christians, and you know, a smaller number of Jewish inhabitants. So this was the case in Palestine in the late 1800s. Um, in fact, when I was born, I was born in 1947, it was called the name, the, there was no Israel when I was born it was did not exist. If you look at a map from 1947, you will see a region called Palestine. So where did the violence come from if in 1900, the violence that we see now did not exist? The population was mixed, practicing their religions side by side, um, largely respectful of each other's religions, um, a great deal in common. So where did the conflict come from? Well, it, it didn't originate from the Region itself, it actually originated from an ideology, a political movement, not a religious movement, a very political movement called political Zionism. That oh, good.
1: Con, t- tell us about that word Zionism. I know you're going to, yes. but we hear this a lot, and people automatically uh, they uh, they have all sorts of misconceptions about it. What is Zionism, just as a definition?
0: That's right, Zionism. It is a movement to create a Jewish state. Okay. And, and then go it ahead. It became to create a Jewish state in Palestine. Okay. They, Palestine. Some of the major Zionist leaders considered other locations. They considered Uganda. Um, they considered Argentina. They considered other locations around the world. But very quickly, they settled on Palestine for creating a Jewish state, even though that meant, you know, if you're going to create, Create a, a Jewish state in Palestine in, let's say, 1887, which is when the, I think, the first uh, conference was. That meant that 95% of the people would be pushed out because it was an ancient land. Of course, it was inhabi- fully inhabited, and 95% of the people were not were not Jewish. But this was what the the aim of political Zionism was to create a Jewish state on Palestine which meant getting rid of most of the people that lived there and bringing in other people from around the world. This was uh, started in Europe, but very quickly, this is what most people don't know, very quickly the Zionist movement was extremely active in the United States in addition to Europe. Now, it's important to realize that Zionism, this political movement to create a Jewish state in Palestine, Was not popular at the beginning. For many decades, the large majority of Jewish people around the world, both in Palestine itself, in Europe, the United States, England, and elsewhere, opposed, were not in favor of Zionism. Most people, for example, in America thought, well, we're Americans. You know, we don't have any any need to have another country. The United States is our country. Uh, many people were very positive about the United States that this was their country they were proud to be Americans. they were happy to be Americans. They had no interest in this ideology that told them they had to go and live in the Middle East. The same thing in, in Britain, the same thing in Europe. In Palestine itself, the pop you know the population of the Palestinians that was Jewish, which is close you know close to five percent, let's say it was around four percent. They weren't in favor of either, of, of these Europeans and Americans and foreigners coming and suddenly pushing out all of their neighbors and creating a very different place than they were living. Especially because the, the Zionists were um, not religious at all. Many were atheists, agnostics. They, were used, they used religion as a sort of um, pivot, as a propaganda talking point that they could try to use to convince people about why they should have the right to come and push out the local inhabitants and create a, a different state there. But they themselves were not religious. And religious Jews at that time, the large majority of religious Jews and observant Jews, opposed Zionism for religious grounds, not only because they, you know, lived in another country and considered themselves a citizens say of the united states or or of england but because theologically the belief was and and there are uh, jewish israelis and jewish americans and others who still hold this belief that god had dispersed the jewish nation had pushed them had caused the, the diaspora the dispersal away from the holy land and had because they had broken covenants they had broken the covenant with God. Uh, God had dispersed them and they would only come back when they were brought back by God, not by a political movement.
1: Oh, that's interesting that you said that. Okay. So it's, this is starting to make sense to me because every once in a while I'm on, I'm on the internet endlessly and I'll see stuff about different pastors talking about com- the Jerusalem has to be the, the headquarters has to be the capital. And yeah. I just saw a thing the other day that uh, Alexa, which is that little, it's like a Surrey. I think it's from Amazon. It's You, you, that, you ask it questions and it talks to you. It's got oh, yeah. artificial intelligence. Asked, what's the capital of Israel?
0: And it said Jerusalem. Oh, I said, cool. wow, boy, there yeah. you go. Whoever programmed that one, <laughs> I mm-hmm. guess we know. Yeah. Um, now you call, now people that uh Support Israel as a Jewish discriminatory state. Uh, you know that's their. That's now basically the definition that this is a pre- preferentially Jewish state. Uh, and people that support that and don't support the rights of all people to live um, in equality are. The short term is is often to call them a Zionist that they believe this ideology. So I think a Zionist is the person who must have programmed that particular programming of Alexa.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> of course, Tel Aviv is the capital. Um, but is it now? I'm still I'm questioning because I saw that thing. That's right. Because Was well, um, Donald Trump talking about there was some sort of back and forth right.
0: about that? There's been an effort. Um, what happened is the uh, so th- I, to get to that, maybe I should continue with the history. I mean, yes, please do. Please, please we'll do. I'm so that.
1: sorry. Go right ahead.
0: Sorry, I'm getting. No, it. we'll
1: get, it. we've got more than enough time to cover this. Go ahead. You talk about it. Go, go, whatever oh, you want to talk about.
0: So there was this movement, let's just say, you know, late 1800s, 1900s, to create a Jewish state in Palestine. So they convinced a certain number of people to go and to move to Palestine with the intention of taking it over and pushing out the local inhabitants. Most Jewish people around the world did not do it, but some were convinced to do it. And some tried it and stayed. Many tried it and left. You know, quite a few people would write something like, I've, you know, this is, we're doing a terrible thing. There are people already living here. We, this is wrong. We should not be doing this. Uh, one, there's a, a tale of one person apparently writing back to his congregation, um, I've seen the bride, meaning Palestine. She's beautiful, but she's married. <laughs> That's so, great. That's a good way <laughs> to put it. So anyway, there was this sort of, you know, this goal of taking over Palestine. And um, they, they, there was incrementally, there was, you know, more and more people moving from, mostly from Europe and from the United States, especially from Europe, to take over Palestine. The local people eventually would start to notice that they were being pushed out. Their land, in some cases, was being bought out from under them from absentee landlords. Uh, so they would start to fight back uh, against this invasion of, of dispossession. And there was violence beginning in early 20s, in the, about 1922, then there was violence again in 1929, again in 1936, between the indigenous Palestinians who realized they were, they were losing their land and being ejected, and the, this colonization influx of people that were pushing them out intentionally to create a Jewish-only state. But this is, I'm having to summarize the decades very quickly. Right. So then when the Nazis came into power and there was World War II, there was more, more, um, not surprisingly, immigration into Palestine and therefore more violence between these two populations. And the British at that time were in charge of Palestine. It was under the, the British Empire. I can go into how that happened later, but... So then after World War II, there was so much violence in Palestine between the Zionist population that had come in larger and larger numbers and the indigenous population. And the Zionists in particular, but both populations were fighting against the British who were, you know, occupying the land and wanting, so both populations wanted independence from the British. So finally the British basically gave up and turned the question of Palestine over to the United Nations to solve you know, what what should we do about Palestine? Uh, Now, at that point, now we're talking about 1947. In 1947, even after decades of immigration, in which Zionist Jewish colonists from Europe and, and elsewhere, and the U.S., were trying to take over Palestine. So for decades, they had been trying to push the local people out, and they had tried to buy up the land so it would, would have Jewish ownership. They had made quite a bit of a change in the population, but not as large as many people think. The population, the Jewish population in 1947 was only about 30%. The Palestinian population, Muslim and Christian, was about 70%. Now, in terms of buying up the land, even though there were some very wealthy Jewish families like the, the Rothschilds and some other families that had... Helped to finance the Zionist colonization of Palestine, they had only bought at most about eight percent of the land. In fact, most historians say that Jewish ownership in 1947 was somewhere around five to six percent. This was because originally the Jewish population there had been very urban, and were only about only owned about one percent of the land. The rest of it was uh, was largely farmland. There were villages and cities, but it was only about 1% of it was Jewish owned land originally. So they increased it by, you know, a factor of, you know, somewhere between five to eight times greater, but it was still only, only about 8% of it was Jewish owned. So then you have the United Nations coming in. The United Nations, according to its charter principle, the bedrock principle of democracy, should have helped to organize free and open elections of the people living on the land. That's what we all believe. That's what the UN, that was the founding principle of the United Nations, self-determination of peoples, where the people living in Palestine would have had elections, formed their own government, written their constitution, formed their own country, instead of living under uh, uh, empires as they had done before that. The British Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, so this was their chance now in the modern world to have their own country through free and open elections. The Zionists, however, as you can imagine, being only thirty percent of those that would you know of the voting population wouldn't run things. So they did not want free and open elections. Instead, what they wanted was, you know what they wanted was all of the land, but there they realized that the way to get to that, would be to have what's called a partition in which the United Nations would divide the land rather than having an election where people decide, you know, have their own country the way we do in the United States and the way people in other countries do. They convinced the United Nations to have to partition the land and have one entity would be a, a Jewish entity and one would be a Palestinian entity. Now, If that had been, you know, if that's what needed to be done, you would think that the Palestinian population would get somewhere from 70% to um, 90% of the land based on either. If you're doing it by population, they'd get 70%. If you're doing it by land ownership, they'd get, you know, at least 93%. Is that what happened? Is that what the partition recommendation was? No. Bizarrely the partition recommendation was that the Jewish state would get 55% of the land. and The Palestinians would get approximately 45% of the land. So it's the reverse of what it should have been if you're at all using any kind of fair, logical way of dividing the land, either by population or by ownership or some combination of those two factors. The Palestinians would have had by far the larger uh, the l- larger entity in this partition. It, it was the it was the UN that came up to, with this. The idea? UN, the General Assembly, um, ended up passing this recommendation uh-huh. that gave that it was completely unfair. And of course, rather than bringing peace, when something's unfair, it results in increased violence. As you know, what an American would accept this kind of thing being done to our land. Right. So it increased the violence. By the way, many people will mistakenly say the UN created Israel. Well, if it created Israel, it would, have also been, it would have also created Palestine. At the same time, it would have created two countries. But it didn't create it because this was a General Assembly resolution, which has no force of law. To be a part of international law, as we all remember our you know, high school government classes, it goes to the Security Council. This was would, was supposed to go to the Security Council. If the Security Council passed it, then it would would consider it would be considered part of international law. It would probably still be pretty questionable, but but it never did that. It never did that. So it, it remained all it was was one of many resolutions by the General Assembly that um, doesn't have any kind of force of law. The way Israel was created was that after that recommendation in November. Of, 1947 there was in there had already been violence between the two populations as i mentioned earlier that had started in the 1920s and had increased periodically through the years so in november of 1947 the violence greatly increased there were quite a few massacres by zionist forces there were at least 16 massacres of palestinian villages um before then in uh in May of 1948 when the British officially left Palestine the Zionists declared the state of Israel so this is at, when 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 Israel comes into existence is in May of 1948 when the Zionists proclaimed our independence you know we now are the state of Israel by you know, that's when Israel came into existence mm-hmm. and and because they had they had been planning for this war, they'd been bringing in, they'd been running guns, they'd been illegally bringing guns from the United States. The FBI had tried to stop this but had failed to do it. So they were, they were preparing for war ever since the beginning. The Palestinians were just people living on the land that it turned out somebody else wanted. So not surprisingly, the, the Zionist forces that then became the Israeli forces had more people under arms. Than the Palestinians, even when the other Arab armies joined the Palestinians, there were fewer people under arms uh, on the Palestinian side than there were on the Zionist side, and they weren't as well armed and prepared, so the Zionists then took 78% of Palestine. So Israel, uh, by 1949, was on 78% of Palestine, and the Palestinians were down to 22% of their country.
1: What makes this stri- this area so important. I, I know on the map, it's on the Mediterranean Sea, it's what What was the drive for this piece of land?
0: Well, what? for the Palestinians, that was their land. Right. You know? But so for, so the for the people, then, the Zionists. The rootedness, because it's easy, again, I think that many Americans may feel very rooted to our land, especially probably people that are farmers, maybe if you're on a, you know, you've, you've been on a farm for a long time. But even without that, most of us feel rooted, even though We've, many of us have fairly recently arrived in terms of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Somebody
1: comes in from another country and starts setting up shop and ch- chasing That's us right. out. You better believe people will be upset.
0: Exactly. And even though, like, some of my, you know, two of my grandparents were born in another country. But I still feel, you know, I'm very American. My other grandparents are right, right. way back. But, so, you know, can imagine how we w- would feel. Well, Palestinians go back 30 or more generations. We're talking about centuries of land, there are ancient olive groves. They're truly ancient. They will go back to the Middle Ages, for example. And they are, you know, these are passed down from father to son, father to son, for generations. So there was a real rootedness, as any population has. They did, they didn't want to leave. They don't want to leave. Those that were forced out want to go back. That's their homeland. Right. That's their ancestral land with with deep roots where their ancestors right. are buried. So Um, the Zionists, the
1: the the Zionists
0: that are coming, they they want this land? They wanted, this is the Jewish state. You know, their claim is we deserve, we we get to have a Jewish state. We decided we want it there and we, we get it. And at this point, they'll start to use the religious claim, well, God gave us this land. And they ignore, well, according to that theology, God, yes, also pushed you off that land. So it's not a very strong claim, but you know, if you repeat only one half of a, a promise and then right. we, well and then the promise was broken you, and we mm-hmm. left and most you know, during the if if you believe the centuries people could have and did go back anytime yeah. they wanted. Yeah, to, yeah. and didn't and choose th- to until it was a political movement. Mm.
1: And if you or if you're of the mindset that the United States is acting by the will of God this would make sense to you too.
0: Yes, that's right. If, you know, if that's brought in, but mm-hmm. again, the theology of it is uh, is very questionable. It was mainly exploited and distorted to try to create this theology that we have the right to go by force of arms and push people out and take it over. Yeah, that's I, not what there's... the religious Jews felt or believed right. or acted. For all those centuries, for all those centuries, people did not act on that. Uh, And it was considered really very heretical when the Zionists did do that.
1: Yeah. I've spoken to James Perloff. He's a historian as well. And he's brought up the fact that this Bible, there's some Bible that got rewritten at the time Mm -hmm. Israel was being settled. They actually changed the Bible,
0: like portions of it, to make it, you're familiar with this well there are. What's, what's interesting is first of all when you when you think about the bible what 99.9% of us are reading are translations you know i, I read it in english mm-hmm. the bible was not written in, in american english was not right. written in king, king james english you know the king james version so we're all reading translations and the translations um you know, I remember when I when I was very small, everybody read the King James Bible, that beautiful Shakespearean language, but sort of a little bit hard to understand. So the idea was, well, let's have a newer translation. I think it was called the Standard Revised Version or something like that. So then in Sunday school, we all got these new Bibles that were supposed to be more understandable because they were more in, in modern English. Since that time, there have been other translations. When you look at each translation... It's a little different, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the meaning can can change a little bit. So to discover the actual meaning takes a great deal of scholarship. And ideally, you read most of it, I believe, was originally in Greek. So you would actually need to not only read Greek, you would need to understand ancient, the Greek of the time that the Bible was written. Mm -hmm. you You would study it in the original language to know what the meaning was. So through the years each translation may may cause it to t- depart more and more from the original meaning or it may bring it closer to the original meaning you know we don't know unless we're expert enough and trust the scholars that have translated it whether they're getting closer to the original meaning or farther from the original meaning if you look at some bibles it, it it's it does look like they're getting farther from the original meaning uh and making it seem, you know, when the Bible was, so, so, so there's that problem right there. Yeah, right, right. What, people understanding what they're looking at. Yeah, that's right. But worse than that, and people need to recognize that, you know, everybody talks about the word of God. But we're not hearing the, or the great we're, the, we're reading a translation by human beings of something that was written, written long ago in a different language. So we need to understand that and maybe read several versions and and come up with our own inspired, perhaps, understanding of what it meant. Hmm. But on top of that, the Bible that perhaps James Perloff was describing might have been something called the Schofield Reference Bible.
1: Yes, that's the one. That's exactly the one.
0: This is a very, very interesting story because this is an annotated Bible where... um, There's the verses of the Bible are in the middle, and then around the margins and below are footnotes that discuss what a particular passage means. Now, to me, that's questionable. I think most of us should try to read it ourselves, try to understand it ourselves, again, maybe reading several different translations, etc. But this was by a man named... um, was, I can't think right now of his first name. It'll come to me. <laughs> anyway, it's okay. just keep talking. It will come to you. It certainly <laughs> that's will. That's right. Um, Schofield was a sort of an itinerant, to a degree, preacher, who lived. Who was a had a pretty sketchy background. He had left his wife and children. I think he'd been guilty of one or two crimes. He was a preacher. I. think as I recall now, this is in my book, so I need to reread my own book to remember exactly. I think he was from somewhere, maybe Texas or something. Um, he decides to come up to write this, this annotated Bible where he will, he's, he's not a scholar of the Bible at all. He has a very questionable background, but he wrote an annotation of what the Bible meant and his annotations made it seem more and more like okay all the Jews are supposed to go to uh to the holy land and there'll be a rapture and you know he he wrote the the annotations in a way that were very friendly to the Zionist movement mm-hmm. that would seem to support the Zionist movement mm-hmm. and a number his biographer and others have noted that and have raised very serious questions about who was really behind his Bible. Um, who was paying for the tri- travel that he undertook. He was, the Bible was ultimately published by the um, Cambridge, sorry, the Oxford uh, p- Publishing House, by Oxford pub- Publishers. How would a man like this have a connection to Oxford? You know, we're talking about Oxford, England, mm-hmm. who published the book. Would How would he have made that connection? How would he have had the money to travel there? Right. He was all, the part of one of the clues is he was a member at one point of a Manhattan literary club called the Lotus Club. Uh-huh. It's not the kind of place where Baptist, a fundamentalist minister is a member of a Manhattan literary club, but uh-huh. Schofield was. And at the same time that he was, a major Zionist leader named Samuel Untermeyer was was there. So Joseph Canfield, who wrote the biography of of Schofield, notes that, and others have also pointed out that they wonder if Samuel Untermeyer, who was a, a Manhattan attorney, very strong Zionist, very much, very fervently in favor of Zionism, if he put together the money and the connections to get that Bible published. Mm hmm. Um, it's,
1: yeah, it's pretty, it's amazing. If people are interested in that topic, I recommend going to jamesperloff.com because he spent a lot of time researching how that Bible came to be and he has his, his thoughts on that topic too. Um, now you've written By the way, a book. I
0: remember his first name is Cyrus Schofield. <laughs> okay, good, yeah,
1: <laughs> good, good. Um, so I want, to, I want to tell everybody about the book you've written too. You have a book called *Against Our Better Judgment* and it's on Amazon. And it, tell us a short little clip about that, because sure, you said I, you looked at my book. Was it that book or another book? That's right. It's
0: okay. this book, and I actually have um, quite a bit about Schofield in my book too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but uh, it's it, the, the full title is *Against Our Better Judgment*: The Hidden History of How the U.S. Was Used to Create Israel. What happened with my book is after you know after I came back from that first trip to palestine in the in early two thousand and one by the way i 've been back on a number of times since then, but I started really studying this issue, both the current situation and the history of it all, because I wondered why how did we get such a close relationship to this tiny Israel that has a very different system than than we believe in it's uh, you know, our values are, I feel, significantly different. Our national values are different. Israel has almost no natural resources to speak of. It doesn't have any oil. What would, why would we benefit from a special re- relationship with Israel? I know why they would benefit by a relationship with us. They get huge benefits from it, including massive amount of money and uh, other perks. But why would we? Why would we have this, this relationship? So I was reading not only about the history of what had gone on in the region in terms of the, you know, the the, some of the things I discussed earlier, but what happened in the United States to create this close relationship, and where did that all start? So I started reading those books starting about 16 years ago, I guess, and through the years I've I've acquired many, many, many books. I've got you know bookcases full, probably two bookcases full of. Books on this issue. And I discovered information about the history of the US Israel relationship that I realized almost nobody else today seems seemed to know, even though it was in excellent books that had been published but are now out of print. So if a book is out of print and today with if it's not on the internet, it sort of doesn't exist for people. So mm-hmm. after a while I decided I needed to write I'd been writing a lot of articles about things that were going on in Palestine itself. And I wrote articles about U.S. news coverage, analyzing news coverage, and showing how extremely distorted our news coverage is. That's the
1: part but that blows me away. That's, that's, tar- that's my shtick. I'm like, you know what, the news is just not telling us everything. So that's why I'm that's fascinated right. by what you're telling me.
0: That's right. So, But I, I realized I needed to tell about this history of the Zionist movement in the United States and that whole aspect of it. So I thought, okay, I'll write an article about it. But it was too much too much for an article. So I ended up writing a book. It's a very short book. It's half citations. But it tells about really what was shocking to me because a lot of it I had read. You know, some of what's in my book I read 15 years ago. But some of it I discovered the the last year when I actually started writing the book. It took me several years to actually write the whole book. Some of it I discovered like in the last... Six months of my research, I would discover one more thing. I would, you know, look into some fact I had, want to confirm it, uh, you know, find some other sources to make sure it was accurate, and I would stumble across more information that would sometimes be very, would be mind blowing to me. So I discovered that this, the, the Zionist movement in the United States began at the same time it began in Europe in the late 1800s. The first, um, Zionist conference I think was about 1898 The um, by 1910 there were 20,000 Zionists in, in America and they consisted of businessmen, lawyers, uh, people of substance in fact by 1910 it was already in the words of one historian it was already a political movement that politicians were listening to, and of course today it's a, a Political movement that bullies pretty much all politicians. But already by 1910, there was a significant political movement in the United States. And by 1920, there were 200,000 Zionists. I also discovered that a very famous Supreme Court justice, Louis Brandeis, he's one of the most famous Supreme Court justices we've had. Most of us could not name many Supreme Court justices from the past century. Now, there's Oliver Wendell Holmes, is something somebody we've probably heard of. Felix Frankfurter, we've heard of Hugo Black, Louis Brandeis. There are only a handful, I think. And but Brandeis is one of the big ones, and he has a college is named after him. There's Brandeis University. Uh, his name is is used for a number of legal societies will will name themselves after Louis Brandeis. Well, it turns out that Louis Brandeis was a Zionist leader. In fact, he then became head of world Zionism in about 1914. He became the head of world Zionism. Interesting. Then when he, you know, and most of us don't even know there was such a thing as world Zionism. There still is. There's a world Zionist organization. There's an American Zionist organization. They just had a, a major fundraiser, I think, was in New York just a few days ago. Most of us don't even know these exist, even though these are multi-million dollar organizations. So I had never even heard of Zionism. And, you know, by now, of course, when I was writing my book, I was very aware of it. And then I discovered that Louis Brandeis had been the head of World Zionism. It had been in Europe and it moved to the United States, to Boston, where Brandeis was. Mm -hmm. Then when Brandeis became, was named to the Supreme Court in 1916 by Woodrow Wilson, he officially resigned his leadership of World Zionism. This was known. You know, this wasn't this part of it wasn't secret. So then, you know, for appearances, Supreme Court justices resigned their various affiliations because they're supposed to be neutral. The right, justice. Right. So outwardly, he resigned it under pressure. He, he didn't do it immediately, but he was pressured. So then he did. And, uh, but then it turns out he secretly, this part was secret, he continued to leave it. Uh-huh. Loyal lieutenants would come into his Supreme Court chambers, uh, report to him about their activities to push Zionism in the United States, to push the Zionist agenda and propaganda in the United States. And then he would give them directives to go and carry out right in his Supreme Court chambers. Okay.
1: So that's interesting to me. 1914, of course, 1913, is was a big change here in the United States. We had the st-
0: start up the Federal Reserve. Um, and by the way, Brandeis was very involved in starting the Federal Reserve, too. <laughs> Good. I sort
1: of, sort of expected that. All right. We've got to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk more with Allison Weir, author of Against Our Better Judgment, and her website, ifamericanew.org. Well, alright, we're back for the second hour today of Shadow Citizen. We're with Allison Weir of If Americans New, or IfAmericanNew.org, and we've been talking about Israeli-Palestine situation, and we just kind of wrapped up the first hour talking about, uh, Supreme Court Justice of the United States Brandeis, of which the university is named, and he was actually president of World Zionism group here in the America and he had to kind of quit his job as a Supreme Court justice because of that. Um No, actually he didn't oh, he no, stayed did, in the Supreme Court. He oh, stayed in. Okay, go ahead. I got it wrong. Go ahead. Yeah, he
0: he's he stayed in the Supreme Court for many years. He pretended to resign his leadership of World Zionism.
1: <laughs> okay, so that's how it was. All right.
0: uh-huh.
1: So that was going on and then we 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 talked about how that morphed into kind of overlapped with the creation of the federal reserve and you brought up allison that he was involved with that too
0: that's right i don't know i i actually don't know much about the federal reserve but i do know he was involved in it wow wow wow
1: now i'm i'm bringing this up because american money is so important to israel We're, I'm I'm looking at your website, it says there's a new US aid package to Israel. It says starting in 2019, the US will give Israel 38 billion over the next 10 years. That's 3.8 billion per year, which is 10.41 million per day. Now, as an American, as somebody who's looking at, I don't know, a place like Flint, Michigan and their water situation, looking at the schools getting dilapidated around and it just 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 what's going at the highways, the bridges, the things here. That sort of money, of course, could be used pretty, pretty well here, but it's getting sent okay. out to Israel. And I, I'm still at the point where I I don't get why. What the original conflict was, they were Palestinians and Israelis were fighting. The scene was kind of propagandized to be that it was about religion, but it was more of a land-grab situation, and now it seems, we just talked about Brandeis, this world Zionism thing, it was all over the world there were these different people that were trying to push for this uh, Jewish state, even though we're, you have told us the people that first moved there, they weren't really particularly Jewish. Um, well, They weren't particularly overwhelming in they population.
0: Were <laughs> they were Jewish. The, the thing that's confusing I think that that's why this seems so confusing to all of us, is that most of us that are not Jewish think of being Jewish as a religious affiliation. But if you talk to many people that are Jewish, though, they will, at least many of my friends and, and associates, will often say that they are not religious, but they are Jewish ethnically. That they're agnostic, for example, or their beliefs are maybe they're Buddhists in many cases, or Unitarians, or Quakers, or um, that they are considered they consider themselves Jewish, and Israel considers themselves Jewish because of their Jewish ancestry. So when when so it's more of a
1: heritage thing. It's a, more heritage, of a thing.
0: heritage or you know an ethnicity um, okay. than a religion. All right. So, so it is no. They they are Jewish. The people that were moving there were Jewish to create a Jewish state, uh, but it wasn't to be a Jewish necessarily a Jewish religious state. Um, when anybody is Jewish moves to Palestine, to Israel, they can quickly, very very easily, almost automatically, if they wish, become an Israeli citizen. They don't say, do you go to temple? Do you follow the you know Jewish laws, etc.? Do you have you know do you believe in God? They don't ask those questions, which makes sense. But they do just find out: well, was your mother Jewish? Was your grandmother Jewish? Does you know, are you Jewish by blood? So it's an ethnicity or a tribe—the way okay. Israel it. Nothing. A tribe.
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> so people who let, just so I can get my, get my head around this: so if people are born Christian, like into a Christian family, and they want to convert to Judaism. Or they want to become an Israeli. So there's a difference between Israeli and Jewish. Are they the same?
0: Um, it's strange in Israel. There's not really a nationality of Israel. Okay. Israeli. They all are, you know. But yes, to be to um, it's a sort of complicated system there. But basically, if you're if you're a convert, if you've converted from some other religion to Judaism. It has to have been. There's there's a great deal of controversy over whether that will be whether you'll be considered Jewish or not.
1: Yeah, like Ivanka Trump.
0: Yes. So some some uh, portions of the of the Israeli population would say yes, you're Jewish. Others, some of the more powerful rabbis and and Orthodox leaders won't necessarily recognize your conversion. And will not necessarily consider you Jewish. Okay. Okay.
1: All right. So that you helped me with that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now so let's talk back more about this um, the US is gonna give all this money to Israel. How does that happen? You had said and you made a comment, I heard it, you said that the Jewish state is more like they're bullying people with their political views here in America now. Were you talking
0: about APAC? APAC and, and dozens of other entities. APAC yeah. is the um, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. It's a lobbying organization that is considered by Fortune Magazine to be at least the second most powerful lobbying organization in Washington DC. Uh, but it's one of only many entities that lobbies on behalf of Israel around the ah. United States. Ah. There are, if you go to our website, there's a, a long list of lobbying organizations that work on behalf of Israel. So basically what happens is when a politician wants to run for office, of course, one of the first things they need is money. And uh, there are billionaires and others who will give you lots of money if you will do what they tell you to do in support of Israel. Basically, especially send lots of money to Israel. If you say, well, you know, it's a tight economy, our schools need funding, our veterans need funding, our taxpayers need relief, our seniors need help, etc. I think I don't want to send so much money away to this little foreign country. Uh, Then they'll say, oh, you're anti-Semitic, you're anti-Israel. We will give our donation to your opponent and you will lose your next election. And that's how it works.
1: Hmm. See I I've learned about APAC because um I used to work for a defense contractor and our um congressman from our state senior congressman from our state was best friends with the guy that owned the defense contracting place that I worked at and he came in my office one time and we we were working on a project for Malaysia actually in Malaysia that's when I first heard the term anti-zionist I was like well uh-huh. They're, they're against Jewish people. He's like, no, no, it's kind of, it's hard to explain, but they they're not for the is Israel state. They're not for that. And so then it turned into all sorts of weird things with us trying to get this contract through the U.S. government to do this project in Malaysia because of Israel.
0: Yes. And we're like, what the heck that's is going right. on? So
1: that's the first time I heard about this.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, Israel interferes with lots of business deals, you know, around the the world if Israel doesn't doesn't want us to have trade relations or contracts or communication with some countries then they you know it's not 100% success rate but a fairly high success rate in in uh, calling the shots
1: yeah is there new laws coming out i've heard something about in texas there's some laws that are coming out that if you want to trade with uh, something about trading with israel if you want to, have to do business in texas
0: yes they uh, they they're because Israel commits so many human rights violations, it, as I mentioned, it will have these massive invasions of Gaza where they kill you know, over a 1,000 people. Half of them will be women and children. And, uh, you, you know, it's really very, very violent when you read the details or when you see it in person. The way that they treat the Palestinian population is extremely cruel. They will strip-search women and children at will. They humiliate fathers in front of their families. They imprison people for years without even even charging them with a crime. You know, it's, it tries to claim to be the, quote, only democracy in the Middle East, and yet there are all these tyrannical policies that are very well documented. Everybody that looks into this knows what's going on. So there's been an attempt to boycott Israel to... Over its human rights violations, over its cruelty and its violence. Well, the Israel lobby, of course, doesn't like that. And with its power and money, it's pushing through, pushing laws throughout our country from the state legislatures to the federal government that will make exercising our right to boycott illegal when it's done against Israel. Now, the laws are sometimes complicated, what they actually mean or how they'll be interpreted. So it's, it's, well, a company that takes part in this or, or supports a boycott won't get any state funding. Uh, it, it's not, I'm not an attorney, so I can't really explain it. And even if I could explain it, I'm not sure if it would be clear to others either. Mm-hmm. But basically, they push through laws that interfere with our rights as American citizens. They pushed it through, I believe it's now 24 state legislatures. Uh, they push it through the federal government. And most of us don't even know what's what's being done to our country. And how we are being used to enable very violent, cruel, oppression, oppressive actions against us human beings.
1: Right. It says on your website there's an international campaign that's criminalizing criticism is Israel as anti Semitism. Yes. Yeah. And I noticed when I did when I invited you on the show, I researched you and I noticed that Wikipedia, it talks about you being possibly an anti Semite. And I was like, wait a second, I don't think so, because we talked on the phone and I didn't I didn't get that vibe at all. And um, oh, this thing about people getting called anti-Semites. It's kind of like, it's it's horrible. Because that's not the the case. The fact is that I'm an American. I just want to know what the heck's going on with my tax money, why there's all this war going on over there, that as I'm seeing, millions and millions and billions of our money is going to them. And, And I don't even know if the Israeli people recognize, they must, they must know that they're getting the money from the U.S., Oh, they know. Oh, they know. Okay, okay. The whole
0: world, I mean, the the region is very aware that American taxpayers give all this money to Israel. That's why it's especially ironic that Americans don't know. Yes. We don't know about our own money because the region is very aware of it. Uh, Israelis just feel they get get it. You know, they're happy to get it. Right. It's part of the program here. Okay. That's right. Now, this whole way of trying to, you know, again... You know, the way that they have succeeded, one of the ways is to, the minute somebody supports human rights for Palestinians, the minute somebody even says the word Palestinian practically, you are called a quote anti Semite. The minute somebody questions giving money to Israel, you could question giving money to every other country. You know, you could say, I don't believe in foreign aid. I, you know, I, I personally do think we should help other countries, etc., but, you know, it, it's permissible to say, it, to say it about any other country. But if you say it about Israel, you're suddenly, supposedly, an anti-Semite. Most of us that are working on this issue are doing this because we feel it's really morally required to do it. I mean, it's also hurting our own country, so I, I suppose there's real self-interest involved. But many of us didn't even know that at first. We were just aware of what, has, what was being done to Palestinians, the violence done to Palestinians, and are acting out of this reason, belief that we're morally required to help other human beings and, and not to hurt other human beings. So people that are active, acting out of moral um, efforts, idealistic efforts, it's especially ironic to call all this large number of people from around the world that are working on behalf of Palestinian human rights, you know trying to call them bigots, trying to call yes. them anti-Semitic. It's just uh, bizarre. And yet this is what they have been doing for decades. And a member of the Israeli Knesset, and that's like their Congress or Parliament, mm-hmm. uh, said several years ago on Democracy Now!, she said, this is a trick. We always use it. When somebody's critical of Israel, we always call them anti-Semitic. This is, this is what they do. If you're Jewish or not Jewish, they call you anti-Semitic. Now, by now, most of us know, not to pay any attention, that often that means, oh, that person is actually doing something good. They're not a bigot. They're not a racist. They're not intolerant. In fact, they're the opposite, is what that the term actually often De- denote somebody who's the opposite of bigoted what they're doing now though is, is really frightening and s- extremely important and again sort of like this anti-boycott legislation that's being pushed through it's going through under the radar There, um, I wrote this this long article, people can find it on our website and we can send you a hard copy of it, it's now available as a booklet about the way that there is this campaign that was started by in Israel itself, that's taken up by Israel partisans in different countries, especially in the United States, where they will designate, they have now changed the, the official meaning of anti-Semitic to include criticism of Israel. Not in the dictionary. If you look at a dictionary definition, it's the traditional real meaning of anti-Semitism, which is uh, prejudice against Jewish people, which is deeply wrong, prejudice and bigotry against anybody is wrong. But now what they're doing is they have created a semi-official definition that isn't that definition. They've doubled the definition so that over half of it, what is about Israel, about making statements critical of Israel, suddenly is officially anti-Semitic. Then they Im- embed that definition into legal systems of European institutions in the United Kingdom, in uh, various other countries in Europe and in South America, in the United States. They pushed through a number of years ago, about 2004, they pushed through a, quote, anti-Semitism awareness act, where they pushed through a new office that would be in the State Department specifically designated with monitoring anti-Semitism around the world. Not any other kind of racism, not any other kind of bigotry, just anti-Semitism. And then they made the anti-Semitism that they were to be monitoring would include certain statements of Israel. In this legislation that got pushed through, over the objections of the State Department, they put in what's called an anti-Semitism envoy, basically a a czar who's in charge of monitoring anti-Semitism, and this envoy, who was a very pro, there have been about three or four of them now, very pro-Israel people, that two of them, I think, then looked for APAC afterwards mm-hmm. and before. Uh, one of them, Hannah Rosenthal, then adopted this new distorted, I feel perverted definition of anti-Semitism, adopted that as, quote, the State Department definition. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it, and then then Israel partisans, in state legislatures say, well, now we will adopt what they call the State Department definition. It's really the Hannah Rosenthal definition. And then Israel partisans on campuses will say, okay, now we're, ad- we're adopting the State Department le- definition of anti-Semitism. So a student group that wanted to bring a speaker like Anna Balzar or me or many dozens of other people that have written books and visited the Palestinian territories and are knowledgeable on this issue... Um, If they wanted to bring in on some campuses, student groups have the right to to bring bring speakers and put on events. They get student fees are shared among different clubs to do that. They could be told, well, our student government has now adopted the State Department definition of anti-Semitism. Your event would be, quote, anti-Semitic. Therefore, you don't get student fees to do this. Mm hmm. Man, this this blows my mind. Yeah, it's uh, it's unlike I, I've I've never seen anything like this before. It's very very damaging on so many levels. Even if people, you know, Palestine's far away, it's the other side of the world. You know, most people will will never see it. They won't see firsthand what's going on there. It may still be confusing, but we all know. That this level of manipulation in our country is damaging our country. It's damaging. Well, yeah, the our fact that you and I are them.
1: you and I are talking about this, and I, I could get slapped with a hate crime for talking about it. That's right. Because I was like, no, this is not cool. We're just trying to figure out what's going on in the world, and trying to figure out what the U.S. is doing. Us being citizens and supposedly yeah. paying taxes or in the system somehow. What we're doing to affect what's going on on the other side of the planet. We're just trying to figure it out. We're not (laughs) anti-Semitic. We just want to know what's happening. And you've dug in deep and you wrote a book, Against Our Better Judgment, and uh, that's on Amazon. People should check that out. I want you to talk to us more about uh, this whole political situation with Israel because this is really important and people don't understand it when I talk to people like in general I'm more of like a chatty person I don't try to tell them something I try to listen to them and when I listen to them like in my hometown people say yeah Israel's our only democracy in the Middle East we have to support them
0: I'm like man but without that much money geez yes that's right well you know there are these talking points like that one that are false. But, you know, you can come up with a slogan Our, you know, companies are very good at selling us things we don't need because they come up with a slogan. They say it over and over and over again, and eventually they convince us. So, political yeah, the G, G-
1: brings out. good things to life.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, they they come up with the slogan, our only the only democracy in the Middle East. Well, it's not a democracy if you're not Jewish. You know, for the Christians who live there, they're third-class citizens at best. It's a very discriminatory system. The whole system is based on discrimination. You know, Tell
1: me more about that, about the Christians that are discriminated against because they're not Jewish
0: in, in Israel. Well, the, the, um, the financial resources are very inequitable. Uh-huh. Jewish schools are wonderfully funded. Non-Jewish schools are, are very poor. Uh, Jewish neighborhoods have well you know there's there's a range of, of economic classes among Jewish the Jewish population but in the Palestinian er- areas there they don't do the trash pickup the services are minimal if at all existent the um, schools are are underfunded there have been excellent books that have documented that there are entire villages in Israel, that were there before the state of Israel was created in 1948. These are villages that have been there for a you know, very, very long time. And Israel doesn't, they're, but they're Palestinian. They're Muslim and or Christian. They are what's called unrecognized. There are, I think, a few dozen of them. I don't remember the correct number right offhand, but I've, I have visited them. So they they don't recognize that as a village, which means they quote don't have the right to be there, and all of their homes are under demolition orders. That Israel at some point can and will, but nobody knows when. Might be tomorrow. It might be in five or ten years. Their home Israeli forces can come in and just destroy all the, the entire village, destroy every single house in that village, this little school they might have, um, because it's. Not recognized because it's not a Jewish town. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, <laughs> so why? Let's let's back this up even more. When people, like I, a lot of my friends, they are Jewish and they'll talk about, oh, when I went to Israel or you know they did like a, what is it called, kibbutz, and they go, um, it's kind of a communal thing, and they they like. They very much like Israel, and I've been there myself, and it's beautiful, and saw the Dead Sea, and all that stuff is pretty cool, and all that historical stuff, and the Holy Lands tour stuff, Um, and I noticed that there's been a big push for tourism into Israel lately. I saw it on the cover of a magazine at the natural food store that I went to the other day, and it has somebody like kind of bungee jumping off of a huge, huge building, and it's talking about the different rights, like the, there was like a gay pride thing there and it was supposed to be very progressive and, and I, I was like, wow, this is, wow, it is, I, I just blew my mind that this is what Israel is and that Palestine, as after talking to other people now, is
0: just a pit. Well, um, yeah, Israel has lots of money now, you know, we've been giving, give it this massive amount of money. On top of that money, it gets lots more money from our economy. There was just a, a big gala in Hollywood, I think maybe a few weeks ago, maybe it's now a month ago, where major some movie stars were there. And they raised, I think it was something like $50 million for the IDF. That's the Israeli military. They raised $50 million for Israeli, for a foreign country, for a foreign military. Mm-hmm. And this was a tax write-off. Why would it be a tax write-off to give to a foreign military? But they, they did that. And that was just one of many. There was one in New York City, I think, it had been the week or two before. The same organization, Friends of the IDF, Friends of the Israeli Forces, raised $30 million that got sent from our economy, tax write-off, to Israel. Uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars on top of the, the tax money that we all give them without, there's never a vote. You know, when was the last time any of us asked, were asked, well, do you want to send over $10 million a day to Israel or would you rather keep it for your school children or your veterans or something? We're never asked that. It's never debated. Never, ever, ever debated. It's not even brought up because the Israel lobby is so powerful. So, of course, Israel is doing fine financially. For many years, they were not. They were a welfare state. Mm -hmm. They had no natural resources. They devalued their currency two or three times because it was largely worthless. Uh, They would sell Israel bonds and then pay people back with the money that they had made from selling more, not because they'd actually had the economy to support it. So the U.S. population... Well, well many Americans have been struggling and working very hard, have been subsidizing this welfare population in Israel. Now they're doing well. They, they often will brag, oh, we're better than the U.S. We have a better balance. Yeah, I've yeah, hear, yeah, heard that <laughs> Americans do. We have lower un- unemployment. Well, yes, because Americans have been subsidizing them all these years.
1: <laughs> now yeah, the Palestinians I've,
0: I've, yeah, I've are, too. are uh, on the one hand, they on the other hand have been suffering they get invaded they're under military occupation Israel has complete power over them Israel is the largest open air prison basically on the planet the West Bank is also basically an open air prison you right. cannot go into or, or out of it without armed israelis letting you in or out to me that's a prison yeah nevertheless they they're you know they're often there's, there's a wonderful part to them too, though. The culture is very rich. The food is, of course, is fascinating. There are ancient sites yeah, throughout the West Bank. Um, the, there's a, a graciousness, the way guests are, are treated. You know, when I was there, people would invite me to stay in their homes and I would do that. So on the one hand, there's, there's great harsh hardship, especially in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. Israel cuts off the money to them. Israel co- collects the taxes from imports that are supposed to go to the Palestinian population. But they're the intermediary, so they often keep the money and and won't hand it over. Eventually, sometimes they eventually hand it over. So they've created great economic hardship. But it still often is a lovely place to spend time. It's sort of strange to say that, but that does still exist. It's fascinating to go there. It's fascinating to go to Bethlehem and to go to um, Nablus and and these places, even though you see and hear about the hardship people are living under, but you also see ancient, amazing sites that are there. Yeah, it,
1: is, it is pretty amazing. It's amazing. Well, you brought up earlier that um, Israel does not have natural resources. I remember, I think it was in Project Censored, like they, they put out a book once a year about the uh, most... Uh, censored news stories of the year, and I think it was 2008, maybe 2007, 2009, that range, they put a story about this giant, giant natural reserve of um, natural gas outside in the Mediterranean, and it was Mm -hmm. actually on Palestinian territory outside, and that to me seemed like to be powering a lot of the stuff with Israel and Palestine at that point, I think I think if I got the story right, but as you can see, I sometimes forget it. Um, that British Petroleum had a deal lined up to do the pipeline and and get the LNG carriers, the big boats, um, to be pulling that out, and then it fell through because of the Palestinian Israeli situation.
0: Yes, there have been some gas reserves that have been found in the Mediterranean more recent years that Israel is trying to say they have the right to, even though it's they don't yeah it sort of might makes right, so Israel always says we have the right basically because they have the power to do it that you know the American government politicians have given them the power they haven't actually earned it, but they they're very powerful with our money and our weaponry. Mm. Um, So,
1: yeah, so that would make a huge
0: deal for the Palestinians
1: if they could have their own gas deal.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, Israel, again, if they did, it would still be stolen. The way way it works now, for example, the major aquifers of the area, and it's a very arid part of the world, the aquifers are under the Palestinian territories for the Most Bank in the West Bank. But that's being, you know, that water is being piped into Israel. So you'll see the Palestinians with sometimes very little water and, and you know, so barely enough for drinking water and, you know, maybe not bathing as often as as we would. I mean, they do. You, you have to wash several times a day, but very little water. And it all gets piped to Israel where they will there'll be wealth, wealthy parts of Israel that will have wands that are being watered with Palestinian water. Oh, my gosh. Uh, see that's
1: just irritating that's very yeah. just kind of yeah. disgusting especially point, since yeah. yeah especially since I know in Iraq um they were using water as a currency and yeah. water is probably one of the most valuable things uh in the world quite frankly but you can use water as a currency and they're just pumping it right out of Palestine throwing it onto people's lawns and swimming pools And
0: uh. that's right that's right so, and what's going on in our country is, you know, I I'm, I dislike the polarization in the U.S. at any time, but especially it's growing so much, I, I feel it's so much worse right now, where, you know, half the country is supposed to hate the other half of the country. If you're right. Republican, you have to hate Democrats, and if you're a Democrat, you definitely have to hate Republicans. Yeah. And uh, so, but in reality, the policies, these extremely misguided, really corrupt policies, on Israel-Palestine have been adopted by both parties. Yes. You know, Trump will be blamed for policies that are very bad that were put in place by Obama, who were, yep. and they were put in place before, before him by by Bush and by Clinton. By you know, so we're talking about both parties are mostly doing the same thing here. Politicians from both parties are being bribed and bull- bullied. Into taking actions that in many cases they know are wrong. Now, some of them maybe are misled. Uh, I think in most cases they could easily, if they're misled, it's because they're choosing to be misled. They know where the money is, they -hmm. know where the power is. Mm -hmm. They get taken over, taken on these big, all expense paid junkets to Israel to be wined and dined. And travel around, often their spouses are brought to. These are extremely expensive gigs that they all get taken on. And, uh, you know, this is what's going on in Congress. It's going on, They this isn't just Congress. They take over university presidents. They take over police chiefs and sheriffs. Get taken on all expense-paid junkets to Israel to be propagandized. Okay, back
1: to this, though. Why is this so important, this Israel? Why is it so important that this vast network can, like, seep into universities and our government? And why, why, why? I'm so confused still, and I'm sorry to by the end of this. I, should, I feel like I should understand this better, but
0: why is this so important that they're doing um, this? It's important to Israel partisans. The the Jewish population of the United States is somewhere around two percent. Right. Not all support Israel. You know, some are actively critical of Israel. Some may some are anti-Zionists who are specifically oppose the whole concept of a discriminatory state. So we're not talking about two percent, and we're talking, let's say, maybe one percent. One percent you know, maybe smaller than that. So we're talking about a very small portion of our population that this is extremely important to and who will put their money there to support it. And then other people who are just sort of going along, they don't want to be called names, Um, they may feel a certain affinity with Israel, but still it's not, you know, uh, a very large number of our population. But if you look at money, you know we know money is power. I like to believe other things can be powerful too. I believe strongly in grassroots movements, in diverse grassroots movements of people of all religions and races and backgrounds joining together on behalf of justice and peace and helping one another. And I and so if I see something I too. I I think that
1: money. I, I think that they're trying to make what you just t- talked about, a diverse group getting together as a grassroots mo- movement. They're making that not happen right now,
0: I think, on purpose. I feel the same way. I feel the same way that there's a real effort to prevent that unification from occurring, to prevent people from finding the common ground that, right. we, that we share and that we would join together on. And instead focus. Well, there are differences, too. Of course, we always have differences. So you know, if you focus on the differences and exaggerate those, and sort of lie about each other, and and uh, cause turmoil and hatred, that can be done. At the same time, many of us are, are see see important major common ground that we share, common principles that we share, you know, common beliefs that we share, and ways that we could join together and and make things better, especially on this issue. So, but right now we have. These multi-billionaires, like Haim Saban, who's an Israeli-American Hollywood producer, Sheldon Adelson, who's a, a Las Vegas casino magnate,
1: isn't he starting up like an APAC group,
0: but it's called something else. He has he 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 has started groups and he funds lots of groups. He has one of the things that he's given a lot of money to, and he's sort of behind is this a uh, group called the IAC I think it's the Israel American Council.
1: Yes, that's what I'm thinking dual, of. Dual yeah.
0: citizens Israelis who are citizens who are Israeli citizens but they're also American citizens and they are in many cases driving this anti-boycott legislation. They're taking credit for driving this legislation that's interfering with our rights as Americans. He gives lots of money to Republican Nom politicians, including yeah. Trump, but just, yeah. you know, all the others too.
1: I saw, I know I this guy's gone. name. I know this but guy's name because to
0: Hillary Clinton.
1: Of, right. I, I know this guy's name because I was a Ron Paul delegate, and okay. I remember he did something because for the caucus in Nevada, and there's the where the Las Vegas is. What I forget it was Clark Clark County. I think it's called that county. They moved their caucus over so that. It wasn't the normal time, and they really thought this was going to make a big difference. Like people wouldn't come out to vote. And long story short, all these Ron Paul people showed up, and like, like they got Ron Paul, and it was awesome. But he did. He tried to like remove. He tried to reorganize the whole caucus of the Va- Las Vegas, and he's got a ton of money. The
0: guy's really, really powerful. Oh, yeah, that's right. Exactly. He's hugely powerful. And um, he uses his power and his money on behalf of Israel. Yeah. You know, he, he basically Republican candidates go and audition before Sheldon Adelson to see who will be anointed. And a lot of these pe- billionaires will give to more than, you know, sometimes they, they really support one person, but often they'll support several people. So whoever gets in there, they'll still have right. right. control. They're and hedging their bets. With both parties. Exactly. And it's both parties. The Democrats, it goes on at least as much with the Democratic Party as the Republican Party. You know, it's really across the board. And, you know, we saw that many disaffected Republicans wanted Bernie Sanders, and he got cheated out of a lot of the primaries. A lot of Republicans and others, um, including Democrats, liked Ron Paul, feeling this was an independent person with principles. And he sort of got pushed out. So there's this effort in the United States, I I think, among many of us, across the, you know, maybe from disparate political backgrounds, who knows there there's a there's a lot of corruption going on. We know the establishment is sold out and controlled, and we find people that we think have integrity, and I think do have have integrity and courage, and we try to gather around them. And, you know, eventually that will succeed. It hasn't yet. The people we've wanted, you know, have usually been pushed aside either through manipulation. We just saw how the Clintons and the Democratic Party did that against Sanders. Mm -hmm. Um, Ron Paul, I think, was very popular with people across the political spectrum. And it's, I thought, disappointing that he sort of bowed out because I think he was uh, a unifier. Yeah.
1: The good thing about him, though, is that he didn't go on to support Romney. (laughs) He didn't bow out like Bernie Sanders went on to support Clinton. It was like, "Mm, don't
0: do that, Bernie. That's right. Truthfully, I think many people that supported Sanders, I don't think would support him again because he did so. You know, there was this, you know, the Clinton campaign was, it's it's come out how corrupt it was, how they're breaking the rules right and left. Yeah. And he knew that. So I don't think people want politicians like that. That's not who we're going to rally around. But how are we going to fight this giant
1: money from this? It's, it's not even It's like Ameri- people are uh, babbling because I'm getting so fl- flustered. We've got Americans with Israeli passports in our government. And huge money rallying around, like you said, these fundraisers. Oh, we raised 50 million. We're just going to give it to the Israeli military. How do we, and then we've got groups like APAC and this other group that Sheldon Adelson's in, involved with. Just, just really pressuring the politicians. Like, you're not going to have your job next uh, term if you don't bring my bill to be, to become a law. How do we fight that? It, do we just make a rule that you cannot, that can we have not lobbies? How do we fight it?
0: Well, I think um, I mean, I do think, you know, campaign finance reform and things like that would be great, but I don't think we can wait for that. Yeah. Uh, I think that'd be wonderful because it would, there are lots of issues that that would help with, not just this one. But in the meantime, I think the first thing we have to do, and I'm so happy this is exactly what you're doing, is sharing this information. All of us sharing it with other people. Not being scared off when you're called anti-Semitic or somebody called you racist. You know, I get called all sorts of things that have nothing to do with me, not who I am. We not, we have to not believe those nasty labels about people unless we've truly, you know, researched for ourselves. Don't believe labels anymore. Look into the person for yourself and may mostly find the fact. You know, whenever these labels are always used, so that they won't look at the content of what somebody's writing or or speaking or telling about. So we all need to find these facts. When we find them, we need to share them with others. And when enough of us know this, then there will then a grassroots movement can develop where we will have there people will step forward who will support the principles that we want, and we will be able to to elect those people. Right now, though, I feel there need to be more of us, and we need to be more focused. I think we need to, truthfully, there are many, many important issues in the world today and in the United States today. Israel-Palestine is just one of many of them. But I feel, you know, just to say, I feel this is the one we need now to focus on. This is the one that is at the root of many of the others, not all of the others, but it's at the root of this Increased violence in the Middle East It's very much at the root of what Has gone on in Syria It's mm-hmm. very much at the root of, of this Massive des- uh, Migration of desperate refugees That are impacting Europe And impacting the US Very much at the root is this um, Israel-Palestine con- Injustice that has never been addressed Because you know We all just looked to the other We didn't know about it or focused on other issues I think now This is a very central issue to our world and to our country. This is the one we need to focus on. And when we do that, I believe then we will have the power to bring change. Until then, if we talk about it, but we're we're sort of afraid to to speak publicly about it, we're afraid to to share it on Facebook, we're afraid we'll be called anti-Semitic or somebody won't like us that we want to like us or we'll be less popular, we're afraid. You know, we can't let that stop us. And when we go into the voting booth, or, and before we go in, we have to make it very clear to our candidates, if you are not taking the stand on this issue that I want, I won't vote for you. Even if you have wonderful stands on many important issues, this issue will no longer be swept under the rug. I will now vote on this issue. This is the requirement. This is what I want you to do. And until we, until we do that, we'll just it'll get, it'll continue to get worse as it's been doing instead of getting better. Yeah.
1: Well, all I know is that when I started shadow citizen in January of this year, um, I was talking to different people and as you can, people can go to YouTube and look at the different things that I've talked about with people. Um, we were consistently getting blacklisted, not blacklisted, but demonetized on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the, uh, screenshots, like the, um, not screenshots, the video counts, how many the view counts, that's what I'm looking for, the view counts of the certain ones like, uh, Anna Bouncer, um, talking about certain issues, they were all coming up really low. And then that's when I realized, you know what, I know more people listened to this and I've got demonetized. So that's when I put, um, Shadow Citizen up on Vimeo. It's on obviously YouTube, it's on Steemit, it's on, um, what else is it on? Bit shoot, it's also on iTunes now. And I noticed the um, rankings at these different places. Like if something's really low on YouTube, it will be off the charts over at iTunes, which tells me that something's going on at YouTube where they're making it so that people aren't getting to hear the information. Yeah. And, yeah. So I just wanted people Definitely. to know that. So if they right. see some – because some of my interviews with people, we've got – you know, like 14,000 views with one with Kurt Haskell. And then we've got 200 views with uh Anna Beltzer talking about Palestine. It's like, how did that that's happen? Right. That, granted, it's, you know, different types of audience wanted to, plus the topics we're talking about. But it's it's really funny when you start looking at the different outlets the, versus YouTube and iTunes. That's right. That's a difference.
0: That's interesting. That's very interesting. We have... Um, video, our, our videos are on YouTube, and I don't know. We'll definitely have to start putting them on these other. Uh,
1: yeah, I'll show you. I, I mean, but you, we can figure out a way to do it. Well, this yeah. interview will be unlisted on, on all those, and I'll send you all the links to it, too, and you can use right. them. Yeah. Great. Right. So yeah. yeah. So we've got, let's see, we're going to be on here for another 10 minutes, so maybe a little less than 10 minutes. So let's wrap it up with something really
0: awesome. I
1: wanted to talk about this Balfour Declaration article you have on your website, but I don't know. What do you want to talk about?
0: I think that would be great, uh, and <laughs> that sounds good, because it's such a it's such shocking information. And it sort of gives, I think, gives people an idea of what we're talking about here. These are major events in the world have been impacted by Zionists in a way that none of us even knew about. So...
1: So basically, yeah, the Balfour Declaration, it says on your website, was the result of a gentleman's agreement in which Zionists promised to bring the U.S. into World War I on the side of Britain if Britain promised to facilitate their goal of creating a Jewish state. And then you talk about U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis played a key role and a hidden Zionist wrote the final draft. So tell us about this. This I was blown away by this. This is what originally made me reach out to you. I really like this paper, and it's, okay. I know it's kind of like a history buff type of thing, but I really thought it was great.
0: Well, thanks. This is um, and it's actually a, a chapter or maybe a few chapters from my book. Okay. so the book. I do encourage people to read the book. It's very short. It's only it's under ten dollars on Amazon, and it's uh, has lots of information in it that I think will surprise people. Mm-hmm. But this, this stuff that you're talking about is certainly some of the most important information. What happened is that I mean this was very interesting. The Balfour Declaration was the statement by the British government that the Zionists obtained for them from them, in which they said basically, you know, His Majesty's government will look with favor on the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine if it does not interfere with non-Jewish people. It's, it's a sounds like a fairly mild statement. But what it did was open the door to the Zionist colonization of Palestine. And the way they got, what was shocking is the way they got this. This was, um, the, the idea for making this kind of statement seems to have been first planted by a, a man named um, Horace Calland, who was a professor at, at Wisconsin, Who started a secret society called the Perushim? This was written about in the Jewish Historical Quarterly, a scholarly journal. uh, Planted the idea that the British would benefit from making a declaration in favor of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. This idea was planted in 1915. At that time, Palestine was under the Ottoman Empire. The British had nothing to do with it. So the average person would think, what? Why would this? Why would the British say anything like that? What would it? have to do with the British. Well, in 1915, the British were fighting what they called the Great War, what we now call World War One, and they were in danger of losing that war. In the first day of the Battle of the Somme, this was one of those major, you know, muddy, horrible battles of World War One. British casualties were 60,000 men in one day of battle. So the British desperately wanted the U.S. to come into the war, on their side. The American population didn't want to join the war. You know, Woodrow Wilson was elected to the presidency with the slogan for his second term, with the slogan, he kept us out of the war. The American population had no interest in going over to a foreign country to fight this, you know, a terrible war that had nothing to do with them. And that was really a pointless war anyway. So the American public didn't want to join the war. It, Wilson got elected saying he, he had kept them out of it. So the British had this problem. How were they going to get the U.S. to join them? They were going to lose the war. They were afraid if, they didn't, if the U.S. wouldn't join them. They were desperate. They were dying in large numbers. They were, you know British soldiers. So the Zionist leader, Haim Weizmann in particular, went to the British government and said, well, we have the power through our Zionist colleagues in the United States, especially Louis Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, who's close to Woodrow Wilson, we can we can push the U.S. into joining the war, into helping Britain and fight the war, and we will do that. If you then promise that once you've won the war, which means they would defeat the Ottoman Empire and then, Potentially, and they were, would be put in charge of Palestine. If you promise then to facilitate the Zionist colonization of Palestine, we will bring the U.S. into the war on Britain's side. This was the promise that they made. It's written about, and it's mentioned in a number of books, including by authors who are very pro-Israel. One of the authors who wrote about it was an American historian who, after she retired, went to live in Israel so this isn't some, quote, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. This is the claim that was made to the British government. The British government believed it. They made this. They they then made the promise. It's called the Gentleman's Agreement. They then eventually issued what we call the Balfour Declaration. And the British, British officials afterwards said, Zionists made us a promise, and they kept their promise. Uh, this was...
1: I really want people to go to your blog over at, uhm, IfAmericansNew. If, it's ifamericanew.org and read this thing because it's really good. We're going to be going off the air in a little bit here, but and I, I, I sorry to leave this to the very end so you get cut off, but this is an amazing piece of work and it's, as she said, it's in her book, the book that um, is on Amazon Against Our Better Judgment and I highly recommend everybody Go check this thing out if any of this is of any interest to you. Also, just to give yourself a clue about what's going on in this country. I personally feel like we're kind of getting steamroller. Um, But anyhow, I'm just so glad you're here with us today, Allison. Thank you so much. People, everybody go to If Americans Knew, the website ifamericanew.org. Everybody, thank you for listening. I will see you next week. And thank you, Allison. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much for having me.